I think last time you shared something of mine, I got a significant bump in my views. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. I was like, hey, Carmen's fans, come on over. <laughs> You are the first guest here the, in the Disciple Dojo video channel. We've never done it. And I wanted, one, I wanted my first guest to be an Old Testament scholar because of mm -hmm. my heart for Old Testament. Two, mm -hmm. I wanted my first guest to be somebody that I knew. So it wasn't a weird, you know, talking to somebody that I don't know and trying to Who figure their personality out. this guy who out. wants to interview? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And three, I wanted it to be a woman because mm -hmm. I love how many women are in Old Testament scholarship more and more. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really cool. It's something that 20 years ago when I was in seminary, there were not very many women in when I was at Gordon Conwell that were going into Old Testament, most were New Testament or counseling or something. Yeah. So all of those combined, it was like first guest, definitely wanted to be Carmen. And so yes. I want to just hear about for those outside of academia, which I'm like have half of a foot in academia. Mm -hmm. So I tell people I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like Neil deGrasse Tyson is, you know, I'm a popularizer. Uh, he's not there doing this work in the telescopes every night and publishing dissertation stuff, but he's getting people on TV excited about astrophysics and he's like a popularizer. And I think there's a need for that. So that's kind of where I feel like God has Disciple Dojo, at least for this season. But for those of you who are full on in academia, both feet in, what is the actual process like of getting a PhD in the mm. Old Testament. So like, sh mm. just real quick, walk us through like how the sausage gets made. How do you actually, <laughs> you graduated seminary, you got, uh, what was, were you MDiv? No, I first? was MA in biblical studies. Okay. MA in biblical studies on the track for knowing you're going to do a PhD. Mm -hmm. You graduate, you get your diploma from Gordon Conwell. Then what? What happens? Yeah. So the, the PhD process starts before graduation. If you want them to, to, to be sequentially, um, if you want them to be sequential, then you got to start a little earlier. I right. did my PhD at Wheaton College. And so I started probably two years before I actually began at Wheaton. I was already talking to people at Wheaton, asking questions about how the program worked. And each school has its own vibe of what who you talk to, who are the decision makers. And so for me, actually, you, James Michael, were a big key in connecting me to Wheaton because you had oh, yeah. just gone up to Wheaton to meet with Dan Block. And you came yeah. back and said, and we were going to church together at the time, you came back and said, mm -hmm. he is the nicest human I've ever met in, in <laughs> academia. And I said, that's good because I don't want to work with a jerk. <laughs> and uh, so that actually gave me the courage to uh, do some more investigating of Dr. Block. So at Wheaton, the process is you have to come into the program with a dissertation topic already figured out mm. and, um, and something that's of mutual interest to you and your supervisor. And the supervisor has a huge amount of power in accepting you. So that's not the case at other schools. There were other right. places I applied where the supervisor and I got along really well, but he didn't have much say in the process of accepting mm -hmm. me. So, um, so at Wheaton, they encourage you to reach out to your potential supervisor, like right. whoever you want to supervise your project and talk with them early on. Hmm. Let me, so one, let me just have it on the record that had I not <laughs> gone to Wheaton, there would be no Carmen Imes. Can we just, 
let everyone be loud and no, I'm kidding. I remember that very clearly because yeah. yes, Daniel Block was. I've, I I just called him and said, "Hey, I'm thinking about PhDs, but I don't really know what to do." And I, you mm-hmm. know, I know Old Testament. Can I just come up and talk to you? He's like, "Come on, spend the mm-hmm. afternoon." So couldn't have been nicer. And and you definitely yeah. chose great in that regard. I would I watched you wonderful. from afar with envy afterwards yeah. and was like, oh, she's doing it. This is what it would have been like. That's amazing. Yep. Um, yeah, but I was no, so when you... great. I was so grateful that you had that inside view. <laughs> well, now when you mentioned you have to go in knowing what your dissertation is going to be, mm-hmm. is that, isn't that how most of the schools in the UK do it? Yes. Yeah. It's more of a European model to mm-hmm. come in with a project ready. Most U.S. schools, you come in and do a lot of coursework first, and in the process, you kind of think about what you want to do. So you might have like a a broader idea, like I want to work in the prophets or I want to work in the Torah, but you don't have it narrowed down to a specific topic yet. And Wheaton Wheaton tries to be a hybrid of U.S. and U.K. approaches, Mm -hmm. and so you do have coursework, but some of the coursework is focused around your dissertation topic from the beginning. And so even in my first semester, I was getting uh, credits for reading towards my dissertation. And as Mm -hmm. I took PhD seminars, I could sort of customize them in a way to prepare me. You know, some of my seminar papers were um, early drafts of dissertation chapters. So there's a little more overlap between the two. So what is a lot of the people that that watch uh, my videos are familiar with college education Mm -hmm. and a good number, I think, at least from the comments I get are familiar with seminary or Bible college. Mm -hmm. What is a Ph.D. uh, like? Do you go to class or is everything you do on your own? Are you by yourself in a library most of the time or are Mm -hmm. you surrounded by students? What's that like compared to seminary, let's say? So again, that depends on your school. If you're in a European context, then it's you in a library um, and you might you might come out and talk with your advisor, or talk with other students sometimes. But it's really you spending three to five years just doing deep research and writing on one topic uh, with sort of institutional support around you. Most U.S. schools have about two years of coursework first, where you're taking classes with other Ph.D. students, um, usually called mm-hmm. seminars, where you, where there's like a roundtable discussion of difficult texts and deep ideas. Um, some schools combine that with sitting in on master's level classes. Um, and that's that was one feature of my time at Wheaton. So we had the opportunity to sit in on any master's class we wanted to and turn it into a directed study. So one class, for example, I took was Old Testament backgrounds or ancient Near Eastern backgrounds with John Walton. So I took that, I sat in on his class, but it was a directed study with Dan Block. So Mm -hmm. I wrote a paper for that class, but Dan Block's the one who read it. But I I was in the class and could ask questions and could meet with Dr. Walton as well. So it's, it's kind of like an apprenticeship of sorts Uh um, where there's some um, assigned reading and projects and other things that are more student driven. And then usually either concurrently with your coursework or after the coursework, there's a list of books that you have to have read and understood. That's why you see so many books behind me um, on my shelves. We had a list of about 200 books at Wheaton that we had to have either 
read or at least perused and become mm -hmm. familiar with the arguments. And then we had a comprehensive exam, which in our case was an interview with the Old Testament faculty. In my case, that was Dan Block and Richard Schultz. And they sat down with me for a couple of hours and grilled me on the state of Old Testament scholars scholarship right. based on my reading of those books. So we had to, you know, write book reviews of all those books and, and then mm. be re ready to talk about them kind of on the fly. Yeah. Um, so, so one thing that I did, you asked kind of when I started my process, I knew I wanted to end up at Wheaton. So mm. I got a hold of the comprehensive reading list early and I started right. working on that list while I was at Gordon Conwell. And I would ask my professor, Hey, can I read this book in which was harder um, mm -hmm. instead of the one that you have assigned for students to read. Most of Gordon Conwell's students on our campus in Charlotte were preparing for pastoral ministry. Most were not going into academics. And so the professors were happy to customize for me and say, well, yeah, you can read a harder book if you want. Um, <laughs> I bet. And in one case, I had a professor say, yes, you can read the harder book and you need to do a, a report to the whole class is what you learned <laughs> from this book. So, um, so it was a good experience for me to get into some um, more technical concepts before I got to Wheaton. So the application cycle is like you apply usually in the fall and find out in the spring if you're accepted. Um, some schools have an interview stage with that. So I applied to Wheaton probably November of 2010. And then in February was invited to come out and interview on Wheaton's campus with other uh, students who had made that cut. And then, um, then we met each other and met the supervisors and they kind of gauged how well do these students get along with each other and who... Who do we want to be around for the next few years? <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of important. Yeah, just kind of seeing how things would gel. And um, and you guys and had did. a nickname, right? Didn't your group oh, yes. have a nickname? Well, um, we still have a nickname. Yes, anyone who studied with Dan Block is known as a Blockhead. <laughs> so we have Blockhead <laughs> lunches every year at academic meetings. It's fun. I love it. You know that you remember the old, I don't know if you remember the old cartoon Gumby. Uh, Gumby's mm. nemeses were the blockheads. They were these little oh. red guys that's heads were literal blocks and they would always yeah. thwart Gumby's plans. <laughs> Somebody that's should buy you guys a little Gumby toy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, clearly I, you can see I'm surrounded by pop culture inanity. So yes. there's a little <laughs> trivia for you. <laughs> there we go. Um, I watched I saw a video that do you ever watch 10 minute Bible hour podcast? Yeah. Yeah. The videos he did, he just did one at uh, Tyndale and Daniel Block was there talking about the New Living Translation and the nice. how they put the translations together. And it was really interesting. He had the goatee uh, mustache combo going on. So he kind of okay. had this more, okay. you know, wizened look. Uh, <laughs> In his retirement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What did you have to, one of the biggest things that, like when I was thinking about whether I'm going to do a PhD or not, and ultimately mm -hmm. I ended up not going that route. Although I'm still thinking of maybe a THM, which sometimes mm -hmm. off video I'd like to talk to you about. But um, sure. when what did you have to do for language requirements? What languages mm -hmm. did you have to learn and what level of proficiency did you have to have? So um, at Wheaton, we had to come in ready to pass a German exam, a German re German for reading exam. So we, we had to be able to read German. They, of course, wanted to make sure that we already knew Greek and Hebrew and sure. were comfortable working in both languages. Um, and then in, sometime in our first month, we had a German exam. 
And if you passed with, I think, a 70% or above, then you didn't have to take a German, a theological German class. And if you were below that, then they required you to take a class. I was like just over the line. So I didn't take the <laughs> class. I probably should have. Um, and so it, for anyone who's watching, who's like, German, what does that have to do with anything? Um, a lot of theological scholarship has been written in and produced in German. So the idea is if you're going to do a dissertation, write a dissertation on a topic, you want to be able to go 10 miles deep. And to do that, you need to be able to read basically everything that's ever been written on that topic, um, even if it's German. So in the case of my dissertation on the Ten Commandments, there was um, there was only one dissertation that I could locate that had been written on my command and it was in German, 300 mm. pages long. So I had to read the whole thing uh, carefully. And, yeah. I, and I'll admit that that was rough because my German's not fluent. And then coming into the second year of study, we had to pass a French exam. So there's books like um, Theological German for Reading, and mm. there's, a, there's a book on French. So I don't speak German or French, but I was taught to, to be able to read it or work my way through it with the help of Google Translate or whatever. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder sometimes if there will be more flexibility in the future on what research languages will count. Mm -hmm. um, I know that if someone's doing historical theology, for example, then they can make a case that they need Latin, Latin more than yeah. French or something. Um, so it depends. I feel like the more we have scholarship going on around the world, with the global church, the more it's going to be important for us to read those things that are in Portuguese or Spanish right. or Chinese or whatever. So I imagine at some point, German and French will not be the standard, but um, at the moment they are. I feel like, and this may just be my sense as again, somebody with only one foot in academia, mm -hmm. but I feel like the heyday of German scholarship has passed that it was, it was the only show in town, maybe in the, late 18 early 1900s or mid 1900s mm -hmm. but since then that it's diminished in terms of like groundbreaking work being done yes you think that's fair are, to say or is that yeah there is it, it it depends on what your area of expertise is and what sort of biblical studies or theology you're involved in right. um you know there are people there are guys like rolf rentorf doing interesting things in canonical theology um, if you're into source criticism or redaction criticism, the Germans are still churning that stuff out. If that's not your game, then you can look elsewhere. <laughs> I, Dojo viewers know I am not a fan of uh, source or redaction criticism. <laughs> I try to read it and I try to understand the arguments, but um, I've yet to find much really, really useful in terms of making sense of the final form of the text yeah. from it. Uh, yeah. A lot of speculation and hypotheses, but I'm that right could be a whole you. other video. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so then this is something that I've wondered too. How do you learn how to teach a college level class? Like how do you mm -hmm. actually learn how to prepare a whole semester worth of lectures? Who guide, does anybody guide you through that process? Or do they just say, <laughs> you're going to be in this classroom for this many hours, this many days a week, have fun. Uh, and I yeah. say that because when I was in seminary, uh, I, I'll take two examples. Two of my favorite professors were Doug Stewart and Gary Pratico. And mm -hmm. Gary Pratico taught me Hebrew. And his he had been teaching Hebrew so long that his classes ended on the second to when the class was done. 
And mm-hmm. by the time he wrapped up what he was finally saying, and now there's the bell, have a wonderful day, class. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it was it was the most amazing thing I'd ever done. Well, then mm-hmm. Doug Stewart, I had him for intermediate Hebrew, and his class literally was, he came in, sat in a chair in the middle, opened his BHS to Exodus, and just said, okay, what questions do you have? And that was it. So there was no wow. lecture whatsoever. Wow. It was, we had read Ronald, uh, no, Williams Syntax, and mm-hmm. uh, and then translated Exodus. That was the course. And it wow. was usually I was the one asking questions because I think I was the only non-biblical languages major in the class. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would just say, okay, well, here are the 20 questions I have from the reading this week. But that was yeah. it. So so what? How does how did Carmen Imes learn how to teach a class? <laughs> it is interesting how little training there is on this topic. Um, you, you you do lots of being a student. Uh, Wheaton has a little bit of pedagogical experience. Um, so for me, my colleague Austin Searles and I, who were both studying with Block at the same time, uh, we co-taught a course on Deuteronomy with him. So we sat down with the syllabus and he gave each of us three lectures and we could decide which ones they were. It was kind of obvious. Mine would be the Ten Commandments and Austin's would be uh, the burning bush you know, call of Moses, because that was his dissertation topic. And so we carved it up that way and then did it. And he told us how it went or if he had any (laughs) tips for improvement. But in terms of course design, I've had almost maybe no training at all. So it's kind of, for me, um, for me, it's one of the most fun parts of the process. I just sit down with a blank sheet of paper and I say, okay, here's the topic what are the things I want students to walk away with? What do I want them to know about? What are the coolest things that I've learned that I could pass along? What are the texts that students might struggle with that we will need to spend extra time on? And I kind of map it out. And I think another layer of my planning is what are the best books out there that I want people to read um, that I think will really help them? And then how are those books structured? Um, Because if it's going to be something we read together, then we want it to kind of line up. So, for example, this semester I'm teaching a Psalms course. I decided to use David Taylor's book, Open and Unafraid. I didn't even have the book yet, but I'd heard good things about it. So I went on Amazon, looked at the table of contents, and it's got topics like enemies, nations, life, death, whatever. So I just Mm kind of went in order through the Psalms and picked a psalm that seemed to match his chapter title kind of all the way through. So we're doing one chapter and one psalm each class period. And it's worked out beautifully uh, because he's reflecting in a broader way on something we see in evidence in a particular psalm. So, but then after I teach it the first time, I take another look and say, okay, what worked well? What didn't Mm -hmm. work well? How can I tweak it for next time? Yeah. So a lot of what you do I feel like, and this is kind of a hunch that I've had about professors and how they do it, but I feel is they, they kind of take the course, the mindset of if I were taking this class, what would I want to learn and how would I want it to be presented? Yes. And so I will not, I will not assign students to read anything that I don't want to read again. Like (laughs) it has to be something I'm willing to read again. Not that I always read again, everything that they're reading, but I had to really enjoyed it or I'm not going to assign it. Right. Um, That's like, that's baseline right there. So I do a lot of of reading and some people may be surprised if they're following me on Facebook at how many like entry level books I'm reading all the time. 
Um, and it's because I'm always on the lookout for who is presenting this really well for undergrads. Um, I yeah. want it to be engaging. That's that's a great way to do it. I, I'm in, you know, we're birds of a feather in that regard as mm-hmm. I read a lot of what I don't I don't read as much scholarly stuff. I try to. But if a new book comes out or something, you know, that that more people, lay people will read. I try to have a handle on that or at least know the significance of it for the same reason is I want, you know, designing disciple dojo courses. It's going to be taught in a church. Nobody's getting any credit for it, but I'm right. It's it's what exactly what you just said. Michael Fishbane. So you're going to have to find something more accessible. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, that's encouraging for me to hear in terms of how you do it because it's, it's a very similar, it kind of confirms how I've, I just haven't known any other way to approach designing yeah. or developing a course, but it's been that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Well, so you've probably said this in interviews before, but just in a quick summation, I would, for Disciple Dojo readers who, or Disciple mm-hmm. Dojo followers who may not be as familiar with you, mm-hmm. why did you go into Old Testament, not mm-hmm. New Testament? Because mm-hmm. Old Testament is so... Uh, intimidating and weird and foreign and Hebrew is weird looking. Greek is easy looking, right? So why? Yes. <laughs> so give me the quick elevator pitch of what, you know, why sure. you went that route, because I know you've probably answered that question a bunch over the years. Yeah, I would say for me, I, I it began with an observation in my uh, Bible college years. I noticed that my Bible professors who had been trained in Old Testament did really well with the Old Testament and the New Testament. And those who had only been trained well in the New Testament seemed kind of like they were struggling with the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So it was just an observation and I, you know, it was just anecdotal, but I thought, hmm, if I want to understand the New Testament well, I should read the Old Testament and learn how to read it well. And then what you just said, the Old Testament is um, difficult. It seems far more cross-cultural than the New Testament does. It has passages that are downright objectionable. It seems (laughs) boring in places and and misogynistic and violent in other places. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it seemed like that the place where the church had the greatest need for being able to understand scripture was in the Old Testament. Most mm-hmm. sermons are in the New Testament. And I thought, if I really want to make a contribution, I should sink my teeth into some of the most difficult texts in the Bible and see if I can find a way to help people engage it. This is, uh, p- folks watching, this is why Carmen and I are such good friends and why we got <laughs> along from the moment we met at church yeah. when I was a lowly discipleship pastor and she had just started coming. That is exactly what you just said is exactly why I focused on the Old Testament as well. It was, mm-hmm. there's something about it that I, when I teach for, uh, for Samaritan's Purse through Gordon-Conwell, we have a, a thing that we do for Samaritan's Purse field workers where yeah. Gordon-Conwell helps get them uh, established in biblical literacy and Bible interpretation. Nice. It's a course I developed, just a three-day kind of all-day course that they come and do. But cool. there, I tell them the image was, if, if you can read, if you know the Old Testament, or at least are familiar with that world, mm-hmm. then when you turn and read the New Testament, it's like you've watched a, 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 a football game all your life on a little black and white TV, <laughs> and then all of a sudden you watch it on a 50-inch plasma TV. It, it just, yeah. things pop out yeah. that you never imagined before. And, and yeah. I'm going to ask you in a little bit about uh, maybe help us walk through uh, an Old Testament passage that our viewer had a question about, because 
for a lot of people, it is just so weird. And mm -hmm. the current series we're doing at Disciple Dojo on the YouTube channel is ancient Near East background to weird mm. Old Testament passages. And cool. And it's amazing how much of a difference. Couldn't agree with you more. Amen, yeah. sister. <laughs> preach, preach, preach. So, <laughs> well, then I want to move. Let, let's take. So th those were I just had some questions that I wanted to ask mm -hmm. you as Ph.D. And I know some people watching the the concept of a biblical scholar is a, a socially awkward old man with a beard and a monocle maybe sitting in a dusty library that can't be bothered with the masses, right? That's the mm -hmm. stereotype. And in reality, scholar, biblical scholars, the, the, the few that I've gotten to know are some of the most sane and, and some of them even kind of insane, but in a good way, uh, fun people, or at least mm -hmm. interesting people mm -hmm. that I know. Mm -hmm. So I want people to see you, Carmen Imes, and see that you are uh, a, a normal <laughs> wife, a mother, uh, you know, just somebody who really is in love with God's word. And, and the, the, what I wanted to ask you was, how do you see yourself functioning um, basically in the body of Christ? you know, where everybody's mm -hmm. different, everybody's role. Like I said, Maya is kind of right now, at least as a popularizer, as somebody who's you know yeah. trying to get people interested in the whole concept of learning the Bible in a scholarly way. Yeah. What is your role other than, yes, you're paid to teach uh, at mm -hmm. a uh, Bible college or a seminary? Uh, university. Yeah, okay. I'm, on the, I'm on the undergrad side. Okay, so you're paid to teach college students. How how do you see that in terms of your calling? Like theolog <laughs> theologize that for us for yeah. a minute, if you will. Um, I'm not sure that this image is a biblical image um, in terms like I don't think that it, the metaphor comes right from the Bible. But the way mm -hmm. I see myself is as a bridge builder or as the bridge between the academy and the church. And so I, very similar to you. James Michael, I feel like I have access to all this scholarship that you see on the shelves behind me. I have the skills and the training to read it and understand it. And I want to help regular Christians who don't have this kind of specialized training. I want to help them access this information, see the parts that are important to, to help them connect with God through scripture. And I also so the bridge goes both ways. That's kind of bringing the academy to the church. But I also feel like it's part of my calling to be a faithful follower of Jesus in the academy. Mm -hmm. So I attend the Society for Biblical Literature meetings, mm -hmm. Society of Biblical Literature meetings. And I, um, you know, I go to papers. I, I present sometimes. I interact with scholars from across the faith spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I've I feel convicted to do that as a Christian. I don't leave my faith at the door, um, but my faith informs my work. So it's a so I see it as a bridge that goes both mm -hmm. directions, um, the academy to the church and the church to the academy. Yeah, that's I love it. That's fantastic. It doesn't have to be a biblical metaphor. My metaphor is a samurai. Uh, which is nowhere <laughs> in the Bible at all. So you're in yeah. good company, at least in that regard. But I love that. I, I think that there's such a need and the scholars that I read the most are the ones who are the best at doing that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think of, I think of Christopher Wright, for instance, yeah. uh, I yeah. read his Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Lamentations, 
and Exodus commentaries. I read those mm-hmm. as my just daily devotional reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's and fantastic. Because, how did you get him to write the forward, by the way, to bearing God's <laughs> name? You got my theological yeah. crush, my theological man crush. How yeah. did you get that? He is so generous. I had met him once very briefly when he gave a paper and I was sitting in the front row and I was like, oh, here I am. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is uh, he, just a giant in biblical studies uh, mm-hmm. and the, the way he's connecting global scholars with publishing yes. opportunities and making their work available is just fantastic. So, and his book, The Mission of God is if I had to just only recommend one book, that would be the one. So good. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he was like the dream person to write the foreword, but I didn't know him and he didn't know me. And I was talking with my editor at IVP, Anna Gissing, and I said, what do you think? Is there is there any, I mean, he's not going to agree to me. And she said, you know what? I know Chris, let me ask him. <laughs> so she <laughs> asked him and he agreed without knowing me. And then he and I met um, at the annual meeting of, of the Society of Biblical Literature so that IVP could do a little film with the two of us talking about the book. And I just feel so grateful that he has poured his time and energy into supporting women scholars and global scholars. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I, I never get the sense from him like he's trying to build his platform or build his career. He's using his power and his privilege to, to give others access. I'm just so grateful for that. Um, those who write forwards don't get a penny. Like he got one mm-hmm. free copy of the book and it took him <laughs> hours and hours and hours of his time. So I'm yeah. just so grateful. That's really, when you meet somebody like that, I I have my own little Christopher Wright fun stories uh, from when I met him in Bethlehem at Christ oh, at the fun. Checkpoint. But um, wow. I, I accosted him at lunch and was like, I'm getting a <laughs> selfie with you. Like you're my favorite <laughs> scholar ever. And he was so nice, but... We, just from that one meeting, uh, months later, I got back and I, I, when I was leading the Bible study here in Charlotte every Tuesday, we taught mm-hmm. through all of the Torah in 30-minute yeah. sections over the course yep. of about six years. And I was teaching that week Leviticus, and mm-hmm. it, was this, it was the chapter on sexual ethics and same sex. And um, yeah. just yeah. before, that was, I believe, when the Orlando nightclub shooting had happened when the gay nightclub had been shot up and they didn't know at the time what the, you know, it was still thinking it was a hate crime. And since then, I I don't know if that bore out completely, but Mm -hmm. it was a volatile subject. And I knew, uh, Oh, I've got to teach this and I've got to teach it like the day after this or two days Mm -hmm. after this tragic event, I sent him an email and I just said, you know, Dr. Wright, we met briefly in Bethlehem. I was the guy that asked for a selfie. Um, (laughs) Do you have any, I have to teach this passage. Do you have any, how, how would you teach a group of mm. normal pe- business people coming to? And he wrote back like probably like three pages worth. Just wow. this is what I would emphasize. This is what. And wow. to this day, I was like, man, that is if I ever become of any notoriety at, at any level, <laughs> I want to be that type of person who basically mm-hmm. answers the email of the random Bible teacher you yeah. know, who's struggling on how to present. It was just, it was so cool. So I cannot, that is so cool. I couldn't agree more with you. And, and, and folks, if you have not read mission of God, you, I agree with Carmen. It is number one. I think it's, I think it's the best piece of biblical theology in the English language. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's certainly just 
reading it was just read it read it if you're watching disciple dojo channel go read mission of god after you read bearing god's name by carmen (laughs) imes which we're going to talk about i have a couple of sections i want to ask you about from that but before we get into that so let's step back from scholarly chat for a minute i sent you some questions that I want people to just get to know you a little bit. So I'm going to fire these off at you and you can answer them as tersely or as elaborately as you would like. But I want people to know, Carmen Imes, what's your favorite movie of all time? I watch very few movies because I'm usually reading, but (laughs) I do really like Amazing Grace, the William Wilberforce story. Yes, good choice. It's a good one. That is a really good one. Okay, so you don't watch movies, you're reading. Do you, <laughs> do you watch TV shows at all? And do you have a favorite or did you growing up? Oh, I grew up watching the same drivel everyone else was watching. Nothing, to, <laughs> you know, Full House or whatever. Um, <laughs> Saved by the Bell, you know, just sort of empty air, whatever. Um, I, I, I do not probably like... Maybe the maybe the fun one to say is that our family has watched all nine seasons of Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> and and people think of Little House on the Prairie as like really tame, but we found that there were a lot of t- tough topics that are dealt with yeah. in that. And I mean, oh, it I seems remember. like every year they're losing their crop and they've got <laughs> chronic illness and they might Somebody die of blind. an explosion. So yeah, I mean it's serious, <laughs> yeah. serious stuff. So we watched that all the way through with our kids. <laughs> That's fantastic. Have you seen The Chosen? Yes. We actually did watch an episode last night. We love The Chosen. And a couple of weeks ago, The Chosen, some of the cast members were right here on our campus at Biola. So yeah. I got to meet Andrew, Big James, Eden, and Judas, along That's with so two cool. of the screenwriters. It was very cool. They really, I, I have, yes, I've been surprised at how much I enjoyed The Chosen. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine named Johnny Sweet told me about it years ago when I was in Phoenix talking to a group of house churches. And he was like, have you heard about this thing called The Chosen? It's an app. And you and I was like, what? That sounds really kind of like low budget Christian-y. <laughs> mm. yeah. And then I, I watched it and I was like, this is, a, this is really, really good quality. It is. Um, um, my, yeah. my boss just down the hall is Doug Huffman and he is one of their advisors he's a new testament professor and he Mm -hmm. helps them with um you know checking the scripts for accuracy and stuff so that's such a cool that's got to be a cool gig if if some (laughs) production studio is like hey can you just tell us if we're off here or what (laughs) that's really cool maybe maybe they'll do some old testament stuff and carmen imes at some point will be an old testament consultant I, I have not been happen. asked to be a consultant, but I, the guys, <laughs> the screenwriters did tell me they've got some more Old Testament flashbacks coming up. So uh, love it. They need to get you involved somehow. Just have <laughs> you like playing, you know, uh, Ruth or somebody just just a cameo, a Carmen cameo would be amazing. <laughs> did you have a uh, growing up or now favorite band or album? I think Music-wise. my I grew up with like. Sandy Patty, Michael Card, um, Lornell Harris. Those were my favorites. Um, and I would say my favorite right now is probably Fernando Ortega. Just like okay. beautiful, calming, worshipful music. Um, gotcha. I, I have a Psalms playlist that my TA has helped me put together on Spotify gotcha. that works through all 150 Psalms in order. And it's now 24 hours long. 
that's how many wow. songs we have found on the Psalms. So Fernando Ortega is one of my favorite in okay. that vein. All right. Now, what about, I know you have an answer for this one because you do read a lot. Your favorite novel of all time. Yeah, my my favorite. This is a, also a more recent one. Um, during the pandemic, we discovered the Wingfeather Saga by Andrew Peterson. I've They're heard amazing. about that. Oh, they? oh, you must drop is everything. Is it why? Is it young adult? So good. Is it, it young is. adult? It's or young is adult. It... It's okay. young adult, which is one of my favorite genres. Um, and it's mm -hmm. too bad my my youngest kid is about to turn 14. And so like my excuse for reading young adult fiction is <laughs> fast disappearing. But the Wingfeather Saga is masterful. It's like a blend of Narnia and Lord of the Rings and Princess Bride. That's how they describe oh. it. It's got like the humor is amazing. The, uh -huh. the, the prose is stunning. But I think most of all, the depth of Andrew Peterson's theological reflection just comes through interesting it's so amazing how many books yeah. is it four there's four books yeah, i'm gonna have to check that out so then with so a good stellar review Do you, are you familiar with his music i'm not andrew, andrew peterson mm -hmm. okay so he, i also discovered his, his music during the pandemic i had never heard mm -hmm. of him before and i'm like where have i been it's kind of a michael card uh uh <laughs> similar to fernando ortega like thoughtful contemplative worship yeah. um he's an he's a poet he's just amazing yeah you totally need to okay. check him out andrew peterson well i'm, I'm yes. for sure gonna check out the books uh because yeah. you've piqued my interest and you can uh, find okay. music on youtube easily so yeah uh, youtube's amazing like you can find any album Everything. and you can just like test it and see if yep. you like it totally. i discovered there were live stations on youtube that just play music nonstop. Oh, that like yeah. restaurants and stuff put in the background so yeah. my study my reading study time i always have like a i think it's called rainy jazz <laughs> it's oh, just like smooth yeah. good old classic miles davis type jazz in the yeah. background I'm, I'm definitely a jazz person so that yeah nice. okay let me get back to you though uh okay. favorite candy or junk food something you probably shouldn't eat but that you'd like to eat i love anything with caramel in it like mm. any candy that has a caramel flavor to it i'm game yeah yeah cab what about cadbury eggs because they make caramel ones yeah. and then they make them no they're so sweet uh, so sweet like sickeningly <laughs> sweet <laughs> i um, love those yeah. um the caramels with the little cream center like the bulls they're buckeye or bulls oh, yep. or yep i like those the I could eat a whole bag of those, which yeah, is we'll, terrible. We'll drop my address in the <laughs> description below the video. People can send me caramels. Again. Send caramels. To, you know, I tell you this, growing up, so my dad's a pastor, and every Sunday was children's time, children's sermon. And mm -hmm. and at the end of children's sermon, for those of you that didn't grow up in, in churches that do that, because uh, most contemporary churches don't anymore, but you would, the pastor would get down out of the pulpit and go sit down on the steps in the yeah. front and all the children would come up and the pastor would teach a little, like an object lesson or a little mini sermon. Mm -hmm. And if you were good and you didn't talk and you didn't run around <laughs> the altar, uh, then he would pull out a box of candy and you could take a piece back to your seat. And my dad always wow. had caramel squares. So okay. every Sunday, yeah. but being the preacher's kid, we're the worst. Preacher's kids are the worst. Uh, I knew where he kept the caramel squares. So anytime <laughs> we were at church and I wanted caramel squares i would make my way up dad if you're watching this i stole so many of your caramel squares from your pulpit 
<laughs> but it was like the, it was like confession? the treasure. Yes, this is my confession. I must come clean. Uh, it was like you know Gollum with the ring. Like I would sneak back and get a caramel square. But yes, I'm with you on that. That's a good choice for sure. You read a lot. And your Facebook feed is you're always posting like, what are you reading? Which is cool because you get, we get to see what you're reading and then you get to see what other people are reading. And it's so a really many, neat yeah. exchange for bibliophiles. Mm-hmm. Um, who are, let's say like two or three, I don't, as many as you want, current Christian voices that every person watching this should be familiar with? especially at this moment in time, um, who would you say it can be a scholar? It can be an author, um, theologian, Mm -hmm. just who Mm -hmm. are any that have really like dropped on your radar? Yeah. Um, so I joined Twitter three years ago in part so that I could kind of follow conversations in the wider Christian world. And my biggest surprise in joining Twitter was Beth Moore. I knew her as the author of women's Bible studies, and I haven't been part of very many women's Bible studies because I've been in school Mm -hmm. so, so much myself or teaching myself. Um, But she is just a breath of fresh air, Mm -hmm. pointing people to Jesus and having sassy and deep um, takes on uh, what's going on in the world. So Beth Moore is one of my current heroes. Esau McCulley is um solid he's a friend of mine and um his book reading while black has made a big splash but he also writes every month for the new york times Hmm. um because he's writing for the new york times he doesn't say as much on social media you know doesn't give his hot takes quite as much Hmm. but any chance you get to hear him talk listen because i think he is a, a sane studied and prophetic voice for our time it's so cool seeing his rise. Esau started Gordon Conwell in South Hamilton the year I, my second year was his first year. Yeah. And yeah. the year before he came to campus, he did a visit, I guess, where you come up for a weekend and stay yep. in the dorm. Mm-hmm. And so he stayed right down the hall. And I, I remember one night, I think for most of that weekend, I think we were kind of two of the only people around. Uh, but we just connected, but both from the South and, and mm-hmm. I'd grown up in a, a predominantly black church that dad mm-hmm. pastored and he was coming out of the black church, but was going into Anglicanism, which mm-hmm. was a whole novel mm-hmm. thing for a lot of people. Yeah. But he was, it was really cool. Just, uh, we, we, I think we went and saw movies together and would just hang out on campus. And since then seeing his like meteoric rise, yeah. it's, there's a few people that I'm like, like, oh, they're really making something of, like, God's using them. Like him, Nijay, Gupta, yep. Um, yep. you know, people, you, people that I knew, like, before. It's just, I think it's so yep. cool to see how everybody's paths are kind of, like, intertwining, but also yep. expanding into different areas. I definitely, yeah. rec- I, I echo what you said, Beth Moore. I was, back in the day, I was a little more critical when she was kind of writing what I thought were, eh women's mm-hmm. Bible studies that were kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I've had some critiques of her stuff in mm-hmm. the past, mm-hmm. but you are exactly right. Her public presence and the yes. way she Social has. Social commentary. Yeah. Yes. And at stood cost, up to. At cost to herself, you know, yeah. and she, she's lost millions of dollars by yeah. disassociating with the Southern Baptist Convention, by yeah. pulling her books from Lifeway. Um, mm. Yeah. She's, she stood up for what she felt was the right thing to do. 
Yeah, I've I could yeah. not agree more. I, she is she has very very much impressed me in, in yeah. what she's become these past uh, I don't know ten years or so. Yep. Um, yeah, very cool. Do you have any others? Yeah. Any other names that you want to put on people's radar? Sure. We've already talked about Chris Wright. I echo mm-hmm. everything you've said about him. Sandy Richter, Sandra Richter yes. is another just amazing Bible teacher. Um, she does a lot of accessible Bible study stuff. Um, she has studies out on Psalms and Isaiah and Jonah, I think. Mm-hmm. And she has a book called Epic of Eden, which is a Christian entry to the Old Testament. Her, my favorite thing she's done is her book, Stewards of Eden, which is about environmental care, Mm -hmm. um, environmental stewardship, and what the Bible has to say about the environment. And she does a lot of work on uh, what are actual creation care problems, like she talks about uh, food production and mountaintop Mm -hmm. removal and um, just various practices um, that are not sustainable and how the Bible calls us to a different way. And I, I think, you know, Every time she opens her mouth, it's just really solid content. She has her PhD from Harvard in Old Testament, and she is sharp. Yes, I agree completely. Yeah, I just shared a video of hers, mm. just a quick two-minute video of somebody asking her about. all, And she just wove all of this stuff into this just amazing yeah. off-the-top-of-her-head response. Yeah. That was like, the culture needs to see this is evangelical Christianity at what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. like at its finest. Um, yep. and there, yeah, absolutely. So I, as part of Disciple Dojo's YouTube ministry, I do kind of more in-depth reviews of study Bibles mm-hmm. that are out there on the market. And I think I know the answer, but I want people <laughs> to be able to hear what study Bible or study Bibles does Carmen Imes recommend the average person have on their shelf? I think um, I've loved your series of reviewing study Bibles. That's a great service for people. Um, the one that I have my students buy is the, is the Cultural Background Study Bible uh, by Zondervan. Uh, you can get it in NIV or New King James or NRSV. But people need to know what they're getting into if they get this Bible. This is not an applica- It's not a life application Bible. Right. It's not full of warm fuzzies. Um, or inspiring tidbits. It's full of information about the historical and cultural backgrounds of the Bible to help you figure out what is going on. There's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible that just, it seems weird to us because we are in such a different cultural context. And so this is um, accessing archaeology and um, ancient texts and just giving us context. So for example, I just opened randomly to Psalm 74, and there's an article about chaos monsters, um, Mm. along with illustrations. It's a full color study Bible. There's a lot of great information in here. So if you just feel like, oh, I want to know what the scholars know about about the cultural and historical backgrounds of the Bible, then that would be like kind of one-stop shopping for you Mm -hmm. to to access that. Yeah, that's a great one. And John Walton's the editor of that, isn't he? He edits the Old Testament and Craig Keener on the New Testament. So two of the top evangelical scholars today. Yeah. Was was Walton working on that while you were studying at Wheaton or had it already come out or already been finished, I guess? Um, I suppose he might have been. Let me look at the date. So here's here's about John Walton. He gets to work at like five in the morning and writes until seven. 
and like churns out all he churns out like five books a year four books yeah. a year lots of articles and stuff too um but he does it all before 7 a.m so he never looks rushed and he always has time to stop and talk so he probably was working on that yeah. while i was there um i graduated I'm, I'm sure in there's so there's there's some insight in there that he probably got from you that went uncredited um I doubt. So. I doubt it. He, the, the insights in there come from his Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds commentary, which had lots mm. of contributors. And then it's just like sort of shrunk down to fit in a Filtered study Bible. Down. So the Bible Backgrounds commentary is five volumes for the Old Testament, four volumes for the New yep. Testament. It's, it's a lot packed in. Yes, I use those. Those were some of the ones I used doing the study through Torah for sure. Nice. Um, that's a good recommendation. And I agree. Again, if, if you're watching and you want to see more about that particular study Bible, I'm going to put a link in the description. So this is one I, I want to get your take and you can you can give as, as hot take as you want or you can be as diplomatic as you want. But in evangelical biblical scholarship world or churches in general, more in churches, you mm -hmm. come across people who believe that because of the order of creation... God has ordained that there are certain things that women are gifted to do and that men are gifted to do. And it doesn't have anything to do with their intrinsic worth or value, but it's just these are areas where God calls. And one of those mm -hmm. is a woman should not teach or have authority over a man. Mm -hmm. And some, for those of viewers that aren't familiar, this complementarianism is what this is called. And there are different forms of it. We don't want to paint mm -hmm. with broad brush, but uh, in its more rigid forms some complementarians have even put together lists of things in churches that women can or can't do you know you mm -hmm. can teach a sunday school class with boys until the boys are maybe 13 then at that point you cannot have authority over them because they are a man etc so mm -hmm. when somebody if you were to encounter or when you encounter our complementarian brothers and sisters who really do believe that scripture says I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man and a woman must be silent and must learn in submission. If she has questions, let her ask her husband at home. You know, those passages mm -hmm. that I know you are very familiar with. What is your, not your theological response necessarily, although I do want you to share that, but what's your Carmen Imes approach to that? Like how, what would you, do you just immediately start rebuking and correcting them? Do you, <laughs> ask them any questions or, or how, what, how, how would you, act? Yeah. how would you respond? Yeah. So I try to feel out what somebody's church context is and what their, what their denomination or their particular church allows and doesn't allow. Um, because ultimately as a Bible professor, I can, I don't get to decide what anybody does. Um, I can try to help open up the scriptures, but um, ultimately somebody's church is going to let them or not let them do things. And so I try to give them resources for reading scripture well, and I'm training all my students equally. I want my female students to be just as competent readers of scripture as my male students. So it's not like I would like pull the boys aside and say, here's what I, I'm going to tell you because you'll be pastors and the girls won't. Um, right. that's, that's not how it works. I train everybody the same. Um, I do think that on this issue, um, those couple of verses in Paul that restrict women in some way, or at least in that context, have often been used in a way, I think Esau McCulley calls it the one ring to rule them all. <laughs> and he, he encourages us to take a step back and see 
the broader sweep of scripture. And so if somebody comes to me with a passage from Paul, I want to broaden out and say, can we talk about Genesis first? Hmm. Um, can we talk about other, because we have actually a whole litany of women in the Bible who are particularly participating in very substantive ways in the life of the people of faith. For example, Miriam, who's called a prophetess, um, Deborah, who's called a prophetess and a judge. We have Hannah, who sings a song that turns out to be the, the sort of organizing thematic force for the whole book of First and Second Samuel. And we have Mary in the New Testament echoing that song and recognizing the significance of um, Jesus' birth theologically. She's not just thinking, oh, look at me, I'm pregnant. She's thinking <laughs> what this means theologically for the nation of Israel and for the nations at large. Yeah. Um, and, and we see her, in, we see Mary invited into this posture of um, participation and submission to the will of God. She's not forced into it. She's invited into it and she willingly uh, enters in. So, so there's, there's all kinds of ways that women are involved in, in powerful ways. Even if we limited ourselves to Paul's letters, if you look at uh, Romans chapter 16, Paul has all kinds of female co-workers that he thinks are worth naming as he thinks about his ministry and as he um, communicates about it. So Phoebe, who's a deacon and is apparently carrying his letter to the Romans to Rome, likely that means that she interpreted that letter for them and, and was the one to read it. We have Priscilla, who's named before her husband Aquila, co-workers of Paul who taught the way of the Lord and truth, who trained Apollos as an, as an evangelist, um, and they have a church that meets at their house. So they're not, just, um, they're not just teachers, but they're house church leaders. Mary, who worked very hard. Junia, my fellow, greet uh, Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who've been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. So we have a woman named outstanding among the apostles in, in 16 verse 7. Um, in verse 12, we have Tryphena and Tryphosa, women who work hard in the Lord, Persis, Rufus and his mother, uh, Julia. We have all sorts of names here listed as, as substantive partners of Paul's ministry. So whatever it is he means in 1 Timothy 2.12, he must not mean that women need to quietly sit at home and knit while men do the work of proclaiming the gospel. <laughs> so I think that's like the ground level. Yeah. Like we have to reckon with Paul's mm -hmm. got a lot of women that he calls co-workers, deacons, even apostles. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people point to the passage in Corinthians that says that women must remain silent. But First Corinthians also says that a woman needs to have her head covered while she's praying or prophesying in public. And so women are praying and prophesying in public. So I'm not saying that there's no hierarchy. That's up to your church to decide kind of where and how the hierarchy works out. Um, but I'm not satisfied with a vision of women's involvement in ministry that just relegates them to uh, cleaning up after an event or uh, only, we can help with that too, or only uh, holding babies in the nursery. I know of churches that that don't even allow women to lead the nursery, that men have to do that. <laughs> so, and it just, you, you get sort of like bizarre 
interpretations that go well beyond what Paul's talking about here. Yeah. And then to, and then to go all the way back to Genesis, we have, as I read it in Genesis one and two, we have a clear indication of the equal dignity and worth of male and female made in God's image or made as God's image. Um, and we have Adam and Eve or the first man and woman being given a job to do side by side. So often people point to Genesis two verse 18 um, where the Lord says to, to the man, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This verse is so interesting for lots of reasons. It's right after God's given the man a prohibition and a, and yeah. a permission. He has permission to eat, but a prohibition from eating from a certain tree. And um, immediately, I'm putting it on screen right now, by the way, so people can great. see the Hebrew and the English uh, side by side. Excellent. But they can see what you're talking about. And immediately we have God saying the first thing that's not good in creation all through all through Genesis one. It's and it was and God saw that it was good and God saw that it was good. And now we have something that's not good. And that's man being mm -hmm. alone. And so he says, I will make a helper suitable for him. And the Hebrew there is Ezer Kenedgo. And I've looked up every single occurrence of Ezer in the whole Testament, the whole Hebrew Bible. And there are like 90 some occurrences. You have it in front of you, so you can be more specific. If, you I, if I were better at Lagos, I could pull up the exact <laughs> number, but I'm, I'm not. Sure. But yes, I, I can. I, you're, what you're I saying can, is absolutely yeah, correct. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just get it real quick because I've got it. Ezer is 105 verses, so 100, 112. So half of those occurrences refer to Yahweh, that mm -hmm. Yahweh is Israel's Ezer. He's the helper. Clearly, there's no hint of subservience there. When God is helping Israel, he's, he's reaching down from on high and pulling her up out of a, a problem. And the other half of occurrences for, of Ezer are in military contexts, referring to a military ally. So it just flat out does not mean that women are subservient to men. If you're gonna have, if you're gonna make that case, you have to make it on a basis of another passage. Um, you've got a great Disciple Dojo video on this, a superhero seminary, I think. Yes, on, Wonder on Woman. Ezer. So you can yes. link that for people to <laughs> watch if they want more detail. Yeah, it's um, that. Yeah, that term is it's a it's military aid, help in battle. It is. Um, yeah, and absolutely. So the so woman is coming alongside to work side by side with the man. They're both given mm -hmm. the same commission in chapter one to rule the earth. They're ruling side by side. The mm -hmm. first hint I see of a hierarchy is in chapter three, um, after the rebellion. Um, and chapter three, verse 16, when God says, I will make to the woman, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe with painful labor. You'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for her, your husband, and he will rule over you. That's, that's the first time we have a human ruling over other humans rather than mm -hmm. ruling over creation. And I don't see this as part of creation design. I see this as part of the fallen reality, a consequence of the brokenness Adam and Eve are turning to each other and blaming each other when they ought to be partnering together to carry out um, their commission faithfully. And as soon as they begin blaming each other, there's a fracturing there and there's a, a domination that results. I don't think we ought to be trying to preserve that hierarchy or that domination. Right. 
Now, there was a little bit of, uh, uh, I don't even want to say a controversy because it was minor, but it was to some degree when the ESV updated and the latest version of the ESV changed it, I believe, or translated it as your desire will be contrary to your husband. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then that was the text that the um, ESV committee or not the ESV, that Crossway said we are going to solidify this text and never revise it again. And then all the ESV translators, I think, even were like, that's a bad idea because <laughs> language has changed. Right. So, right. Um, But what do you think that phrase, and I have it on the screen, people can mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. when it says, um, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. I know that, that the way that that phrase childbearing is used, there's some question about, I think Catherine McDowell uh, noted in her book on God's image that there's a question that that translation may be need to be different. But then does she, husband, does she, I'm trying to remember, does she, is she the one who says that it could be conception? I will multiply your pain in conception. No, it was, no. um, let me, let me grab her book so that I mine is not this. quite within reach. Yes. It's chat. It's page 26. And her footnote, it's footnote nine oh, on page 26. And, Interesting. And she, uh, yeah, she notes that the Septuagint says, I will greatly increase your pains and groanings. And I didn't know if you had, because I know you have done work mm. on this issue, but I didn't know if you had ever heard that or. No, if, I don't. I hadn't. I didn't remember noticing this. I, I would want, like, I haven't chased it down, but my next step would be to, to interrogate the Greek words for pains and groanings and see, are these childbirth related terms? Right. And I don't know offhand. Yeah. It it was interesting. It was interesting. Um, But the question more important that I want to ask you is that, and your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you or however you prefer that be translated. What do you think that is? Do you think that's a, prescription or do you think that's a description of what's going to happen i think it's a description of the of the brokenness that results from the kind of um lack of trust that's come into their relationship Mm -hmm. and so instead of working side by side there's going to be an imbalance not because god wants there to be an imbalance but because there's been a breach of obedience So just, you know, I just don't know people, maybe there's somebody out there, but I don't know people personally who say women should never use any kind of anesthetic in childbirth because God says there's going to be pain in childbearing, (laughs) Right. Um, like no epidural because the Bible says, you know, even if it's a C-section, no epidural because there's supposed to be pain in childbirth. Like, I don't hear people saying that, although I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me if somebody out there says that. I'm sure um, somebody has said it. Somebody but, somewhere, yeah, crazy a, a man, no doubt. Um, but, <laughs> but for some reason, the second half of the verse becomes programmatic in some mm-hmm. conservative circles. Like this, the man needs to dominate his wife. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and to me, this is a, a description of the consequences. It's not even called a curse. God curses the snake. He curses mm-hmm. the ground, but he does not curse the humans. Right. Um, so I, to me, it's this is not inevitable uh, that we should live like this or that it, it becomes our ideal. Mm-hmm. It's the non-ideal. And what we should be living into is the creation vision of the side-by-side partnership. Yeah. And then when you factor in the New Testament, how Jesus constantly undermines 
this relationship imbalance throughout his ministry yes. and how he's yes. ushering in kind of the new creation ideal. Um, yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. I think that I, there is, I can respect, did you see the Gordon Conwell alumni uh, forum we did, Can mm-hmm. Women Lead Men, where Ben Witherington no. came? And so no. we had, um, it, I'll link it in the description as well for people that it, it was about a two hour session debate friendly debate between uh, two Gordon Conwell alumni. And we had a woman give the complementarian perspective Hmm. and we had a man do the egalitarian because we wanted to make sure that it wasn't a gender, you know, man versus woman stereotypical Mm -hmm. argument. But there was, it it was interesting. And and I think it was there, there are forms of complementarianism, uh, what I would call soft complementarianism that Mm -hmm. I really can respect, even though I disagree Mm -hmm. with them on how they handle certain passages, they, they kind of arrive at the idea of, look, I don't know why God said this, but I believe Paul limited the role of Mm -hmm. elder in a church to men only. And I just have to go with that, Mm -hmm. which that's a very different argument than from all time, women have been created only to do this, this, and this. And it's, there's a whole landscape out there, and I think it gets flattened sometimes in egalitarian and complementarian debates. I have seen that happen several times this year. There are some prominent books right now that are kind of uh, critiquing complementarianism, and mm-hmm. it needs to be critiqued. So I'm thankful for the critique, but sometimes all complementarians are lumped into one category. And yeah. I work at a school with a complementarian statement in our school of theology. Um, I have colleagues who are very, very kind to me as a woman and who would say women can do anything at Biola University from speak in chapel to teach Bible and theology all the way up to be provost or president. Um, so it is, a, it is a soft form of complementarian uh, for some of my colleagues, not, not for everyone. Um, some of them are are have a harder line on that. Um, I think for me, what I would say to those who are watching, who are trying to figure out, well, what, how do I navigate my context or what do I do in my context? If there are limits for women, how can I encourage women to be part partnering partners in ministry, even if I can't change the rules about their, what their roles are called. I would say there are so many things women can do and we have to be creative and think outside the box. Um, Mm. What can make a list of brainstorm? What can women do? And maybe there are things that women can do that your church isn't even doing right now. I remember when I was, when you and I were part of the same church um, in Charlotte, Good Shepherd, that I was asked to be part of the altar prayer ministry, which was so fun because after the service, we would go up front and anybody who had a, had a prayer need could just come and talk to one of us and we could anoint them and pray for them. I loved doing that. And that didn't require ordination. You didn't have to be an elder. Um, it was good to have men and women up front so that men and women who come forward would have somebody of their own gender to talk to. And so that's a wonderful example of a significant ministry role that women could have. Um, can can women not preach in your context? Well, then how are you making sure that sermons are addressing women and are, are addressing women's concerns and are thinking about things that women are wondering about? Have a group of women that you talk to about your sermons before you preach. 
that you that you wrestle with the text together so that you can get a woman's perspective have a have a multicultural group of people who give you feedback on it um can women read scripture can they make announcements can they lead evangelistic outreach in the community can they plan mission trips can they share their testimony can they lead bible studies that are not on sunday morning at from the pulpit like there are there are so many things that women can do um and i think we just need to be a little more creative about it yeah i i take i agree with you and i for especially for people that are in softer complementarian churches Um, that's a need is to be creative and and not just for women, but for the male leaders in those churches to be creative in in giving women voices in every way that their theology will allow them at every possible way. Um, I, I think there's also, there's hard complementarianism. I think there's hard egalitarianism. And and I think Mm -hmm. I see this more still being in a Methodist setting. I have to tell people sometimes I'm, I, I lean egalitarian, but it's not because it's a women's rights issue for me, because right. once you put mm-hmm. ministry as a rights thing, then you've yeah. al- I think you've already stepped away from scripture. It's right. a question of can God call who he will call? Yeah. And so it, it's, it's different. It's not a typical, mm-hmm. like it's, it's not a progressive uh, feminism, although I'm, I think there are healthy forms of feminism. I think there are some unhealthy forms of it as well. Yep. And it's not a sociopolitical fight. For me, it's the scriptures you pointed to, how, you know, the, the, the effect of the curse was the mm-hmm. separation and the hierarchy of what in mm-hmm. Genesis 1 was the unity. Male and female yeah. are both synonymous with the image of God in that three-part and structure. And both told to rule over the earth. Yeah, to have dominion. Yeah. So, yeah. yes, I, 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 Dojo viewers uh, hopefully are aware that in most culturally controversial issues the truth is usually somewhere in the middle of the extremes mm-hmm. and i think yeah. in egalitarian complementarian service that's why i liked the uh forum at gordon conwell that they did because mm-hmm. it was it wasn't the extremes it was yeah. thoughtful evangelical discussion yeah. of it which is so yeah. needed I, I think one thing i've been thinking about lately is just um i've been sad over um wondering what we've been missing because mm-hmm. women have not, have been sidelined and they haven't been invited into spaces where they can make a significant contribution. Um, I went through four years of Bible college, five years of seminary. I mean, it was a two-year degree spread over five years at Gordon-Conwell. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent five years working on my PhD and I can only think of one book written by a woman that I was asked to read in mm-hmm. all of those years in, in Bible and theology. And I never had a single female Bible professor in all of those years of education. And I just, I've been kind of sitting with that lately and and wondering, what have I been missing because I haven't had somebody who helped me learn how to read the Bible as a woman? Mm. Um, It wasn't even until it was two years ago that Lifeway and Tyndale House approached me in the space of a couple of weeks uh, apart and both asked me to contribute to women's study Bibles. And I, my reaction was like, why do women need their own Bible? That's kind of <laughs> lame. Like we all read the same Bible. Like mm. we should all just have James Michael's Bible for the rest of us class and we all know how to read Preach. it. No. Um, and, and, and yet I thought, well, there are women who, 
probably will feel less intimidated by a, a women's study Bible or they'll gravitate toward it or someone will give give it to them as a gift for Mother's Day or something. So what if women in contexts that were strictly complementarian had the opportunity for the first time to learn from a woman with a PhD? And both projects use women all the way through who are very well trained and um, highly accomplished in Bible theology. So I said yes to both projects and it, and working on those projects was transformative for me because it was the first time in my whole life that someone asked me to read the Bible as a woman. Hmm. And I began to notice things that I haven't noticed. I haven't lingered over before because nobody has said, explain this one to women. Uh, I was asking myself, what are women going to wonder? What's going to bother them? What, what are they going to be excited about? What's going to be good news? And it was so rich to read through the Bible to read. I just was working in Genesis and Exodus for those two projects. Mm. And um, it's, what a rich experience. And I think it's really helped me in the classroom to know how to f- frame things and what to highlight for my classes so that people understand the Bible is good for women. Yeah. Um, and and I, those... now I'm wondering, now I'm wondering, like, what else are we missing? Because we haven't had women teaching us. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I, when are, when, real quick, when are those coming out? Do you know any um, basic time frame? I mean, I know I you never know think, exact dates, but. I think the Tyndale House one is going to be out first, I think 20, fall 2024. Okay. So it's still a ways off. Um, the people in the Bible department at Tyndale House say this is the best study Bible they have ever produced. Like they are so, the team is so excited about this yeah. Bible and the, the voices that we have. And the it's a, it's a multicultural group of accomplished women who've worked on it. And, and I'm excited. I've seen some early uh, page proofs and it's beautiful. Uh, I think the life Bible um, is further off. Okay. Tell, tell your contacts there to uh, send a uh, disciple dojo, a review. Yes. copy, And I'd love to do videos on both of those. Yes. Um, you betcha. For sure. I would definitely want to, I, I think you're, I, when I think of seminary, you know, I remember reading, when you said that, I started to think who I had to read. And mm-hmm. I, I remember having to read uh, Aida Spencer in New mm. Testament and Catherine Crager's work. Um, and then um, Joyce Baldwin and um, Elizabeth Ochtemeyer. And there, there were some, I remember, but it, to me, it was yeah. never, it wasn't um, like some I didn't even know were women until I looked at the mm. first name. Uh, well, but then now there are I the could... ones that are that look like they're women, but they're not. Like Meredith Klein is a man, <laughs> <laughs> right? Meredith <laughs> I Klein. Get the name Meredith. So um, yes. there was a few times I was like, "Oh, look!" And then I was like, "Oh, never mind. It's a he." Um, <laughs> Adele Berlin's Dynamics of Biblical Parallelism was the only book that I mm. read in my entire program that I can think of. I'm wow. unless I'm forgetting one. I've scoured my shelves to see, like, am I forgetting? Is there is there another book? Am I exaggerating? Um, yeah. I found one other book that's co-edited by a woman and it has a few chapters by women, but not another like full book by a woman. There is. Yeah. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer's uh, Preaching Hard Text of the Old Testament oh, nice. was yeah, had some interesting it. insights in it. Uh, and mm-hmm. then uh, Aida Spencer, she taught at Gordon-Conwell, but yep. her book, The Prayer Life of Jesus, I remember okay. being pretty, it was dense. It wasn't yeah. an easy yeah. read, but it was, it had some yeah. interesting insight. But yeah, I, I love seeing more women, especially more evangelical women who are openly like, Hey, we believe this thing called scripture. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not trying Mm -hmm. to deconstruct. We're not trying to find the subversive 
right. you know, I, I just, I, I was, I was as nice as I could be in my review of the, uh, one of the uh, study Bibles, the new international Bible or new interpreters Bible. Um, okay. but the essay that was at the end of it on the, uh, the authority of scripture as Phyllis Tribble, the authority of scripture. And it okay. was, it was the most painful thing I think I've read mm-hmm. in any of my study Bible reviews. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, mm-hmm. there are such, I mean, I thought of you, I thought of Sandra Richter. I thought of Carol Kaminsky. I thought oh, of like, yeah. I was like, there are women who, who I would love to hear their take on it because it wouldn't be formulaic or it wouldn't right. be so wedded right. to a feminist radical hermeneutic or, a hermeneutic of suspicion or so there's such a need. And that's, that's again, why I want people to know who you are beyond just Mm -hmm. your book's name and title. I want them to know Carmen Imes and and get a feel for you in this interview. So I'm, I'm loving it. And I know that they are. Let me just say before we move on that I am Mm -hmm. very encouraged by the number of books that evangelical women are writing on the Bible right now. I'm part of, I, I help lead a commentary club for women uh-huh. who are writing Bible commentaries. And we have like 20 members and we meet That's over amazing. Zoom and talk about our commentary work. Like pretty soon, like five years from now, these shelves behind me will be flipped in terms of the gender representation. And I'm just so excited about that because like you said, it, these are women who are not critiquing scripture or undermining it, but who are mm-hmm. trying to read it faithfully um, as as women who believe in the authority of scripture. So it's, it's, it's an exciting time to be in this field. It, it really is. And there's a lot of, I mean, I think of just on my social media feed, which is my Facebook feed is pretty diverse and in, in terms of who I f- make sure that I follow so that they don't get an algorithm that makes it an echo chamber. And mm-hmm. there are so many women right now who I see names that are just constantly popping up and, and like uh, Lynn Koick and you yep. and um, just, I, I'll see, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's really cool. This is Michelle Knight, Madison Pierce. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Libby Backfish, Holly Beers, Sandy Richter. There's so many women, Chloe Sun. I'm just yeah. so encouraged by what I'm seeing. That's awesome. Well, I love it. I, it may in, you know, some of the, I don't know, like John MacArthur may not love it, but I love it. I think it's <laughs> I'm great. sure he doesn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, you're, you're out in his home turf, so you better be careful out there. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me talk a little bit about uh, bearing God's name. Cause I want to mm-hmm. either make some observations or ask you some questions okay. about it. And I definitely want my readers to read it. So I already asked you, how did you get Chris Wright to write the forward? Which is awesome. Yep. The first sentence, in the first chapter so on page 11 noting this so anybody watching this could turn there and see but the first sentence you Mm -hmm. say and i'd love for you to elaborate maybe like a you know a couple of minutes two minutes Mm -hmm. on the first and most commonly made mistake with the old testament law is to ignore where it appears now Mm -hmm. i know what you mean by that and i think that's brilliantly succinct and a great way to start a book on the Old Testament law, which is dear to my heart. I spent five years teaching through it every week to lay people. Mm-hmm. Unpack that for viewers who were like, wait, yeah. what? what is important about the law and where it appears? What do you yeah, mean by that? I, th- I think that Christians usually assume that the Old Testament law was Israel's means of salvation, that they obeyed the law so that God would save them. And that's this is where it's 
location in the text is so important to, to notice. We see the Ten Commandments usually like posted on the wall, um, you know, clipped out from the, its context. So we don't, right. we're not seeing what comes right before this and what comes right after this. The, the Ten Commandments appear in Exodus chapter 20. That's halfway through the book. The first half of the book of Exodus is the story of God hearing the cries of distress of his people and rescuing them from slavery, taking them across the desert and and inviting them into a covenant with himself at Sinai. And and if we get those two events swapped around, that then we misunderstand Old Testament law. So I, I say in the book that Moses did not show up on the border of Sinai with the Ten Commandments, with the two tablets and say, hey, guys, guess what? I can get you out of here. All you have right. to do is sign on the bottom line that you'll do all of these things. Um, he, this is not a prerequisite for salvation. It is instead uh, the means by which they're going to carry out their vocation or their mission as the people of God. God's already rescued them. He's already said, you are mine. Now he's saying, here's how to live like you're mine. So the law is a matter of mission that's showing, showing the Israelites how to demonstrate the character of God among the nations. Mm -hmm. And if we get that right, then all of a sudden we don't need to chuck the Old Testament law when Jesus comes on the scene. Because this is what happens. We have, we're saved by faith in Jesus. So if you think that the Old Testament law is how people got saved, then oh, we don't need that anymore. But if you recognize that the law was the means by which Israel carried out her mission, then Jesus saving us doesn't change that. It just it just gives us new energy for this mission of faithfulness. He models for us what faithfulness looks like. He he atones for our sin so that we can walk rightly with God. And then we're still supposed to go live it out in every area of our lives. So you've got letters from Paul that have lots and lots and lots of practical instruction for how to live as a Christian that lines up with Old Testament law. He's not saying, save by grace, do whatever you want. That's <laughs> right. like anything goes now. No, anything doesn't go because we have been uh, nominated, invited, um, appointed to this role as God's representatives among the nations. So that mm. flipping that around uh, changes everything. Absolutely, yes. I it's it's cool because you when when I teach on this, my favorite uh, way to show people exactly what you're saying is how Paul takes the uh, agricultural law about not muzzling an ox mm -hmm. and applies that to paying preachers or clergy or, or people yes. that are working for the gospel. So he's yes. not, he, he's not just saying, Hey, here's a random example. He's like, this is what the law teaches, but what he's mm -hmm. telling them to do is not literally what the law was telling Israel to do, right. which is don't right. put a muzzle on an ox's mouth. Although he probably wouldn't do that still, right. but it's the deeper principle. So noting that uh, my question that I would like to hear, at least maybe you talk to is because a lot of viewers struggle with this. Okay, I believe you, Carmen. You've convinced me. I read Bearing God's Name. I want to be all about the law. How do you do that without going back into law keeping in a mm -hmm. way that is actually undermines the gospel, whereby now yeah. you have to keep the law? Because that seems to be mm -hmm. what Paul was arguing against to the Galatians. Mm -hmm. we, we have to keep that order right. We have to just constantly recognize we're saved by grace. And now we have a mission to do. And I think if we prayerfully say, Lord, how can I serve you well? How can I carry out this mission well? And if we then get together with other believers and read the Torah together, 
and brainstorm what might this look like to do in our context? What, how can we, okay, like I'm not a farmer or I don't have an ox. What do I do with this? What, how do I live out faithfully the principle behind this law? And, and if it becomes like a joy filled, let me see how I can, how I can live into this identity and vocation. Um, then I think that guards against a kind of legalism. So I love, this is a conversation I love having with my students. When I taught before I was at Biola, I was at Prairie College in Three Hills, Alberta, Canada, which was surrounded by (laughs) 3,400 people in our town um, and a a school of of 250 students. And we, we were surrounded by wheat fields and canola fields and some peas. And um, so many of my students, about half of them had come from farming communities Mm -hmm. and we were able to look at the agricultural laws and actually talk about like, I'd say, okay, who here has a farm? And somebody would be like, yeah, we have a farm. And I'm like, all right, what do you grow? Okay, we grow wheat. Great. Do you reap to the edges of your field? (laughs) And they're like, oh yeah. Well, the law (laughs) says you're not supposed to reap to the edges of your field. So why are you doing it? And they'd be like, well, isn't the point of the law so that the widow and the foreigner can come and gl- and like, and nobody's going to come on our property because that's illegal. So, okay, well, how can we live out the spirit of this law in a culture where people don't go through the, the fields yeah. on foot picking grain? Um, and we had just a wonderful conversation about how to live into the spirit of that law. Um, the first, first suggestion was, oh, maybe we could reap all our harvest and donate some of it to a food bank which is decent. That's not a bad thing to do. But then somebody's like, that's not quite the same thing. Because if you're not reaping to the edges of your field, you're actually giving someone the dignity of a day's labor to find this food. So it's not a handout. It's actually like we're, we're allowing you to grow food on our land kind of Mm -hmm. more, more along those lines. And so then we talked about, okay, what might that look like? Well, you could hire people to work on your farm who can't pass a background check because they've recently been released from prison or they're struggling deeply with mental illness and they can't show up reliably to work every morning or they maybe they don't have a green card or whatever. Like we talked about people who are on the margins of society. Maybe they don't maybe they are are houseless and so they don't have an address to, to put down for a paycheck. And they need to be paid in cash. So how could you make your farm uh, put into to place a way of doing business as a farmer that includes people who are on the margins? And then somebody's like, well, what do the rest of us do who don't have farms? Well, if you own the dollar store in town, you could actually have the same principle at work. It doesn't have to be farming. It could be any number of kinds of businesses. So that's that's the fun part, right? Taking yeah. a law and then brainstorming together. Okay, what if we did this? Does that capture the spirit of it? Or are we missing something? Is there something here that's that's being left out? Yes, this is, uh, you. amen, 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 times a thousand. That's the way to understand the law is, is get the spirit of the law. That's what it means when Jesus says, you know, keeping the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law, people mm-hmm. uh, put those as if the spirit of the law is just kind of be free and do what you want and, and mm-hmm. follow your inner heart. And the letter of the law is do what it says. And it's like, no, no, no. The, the letter of the law means the dry, uncommitted, not committed inwardly, at least keeping of the law. Yeah. And, I'm just trying to make to it the... look like I'm obeying the law, exactly. but I actually have a wicked heart. 
yeah, I want loopholes. I want to, you know, yeah. what's the minimum yeah. I can do and keep the law? Whereas the spirit of the law is which, exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Where can I apply this law other yeah. than just what it's saying? And yeah, that's... so the letter, the letter of the law would be someone reaping just to the edge of the field and leaving like right. three, you know, three stalks of grain and being like, right. okay, I kept the law. Whereas Boaz is keeping the spirit of the law by telling his workers, go ahead and leave some extra exactly. grain on the ground for her to pick up. Yes, exactly. I tell people the law, the beautiful thing about the law, and in that case, the law of gleaning is it, it, it builds in a couple of things. It builds in, like you said, the dignity of work. Mm -hmm. So you're giving a Mm -hmm. hand up, not a handout. And it also builds in a chance for the law keeper to exercise their generosity and exercise their faith. Because like you Mm -hmm. said, you could leave Mm -hmm. one, one row of wheat and say, I kept the law and fair enough. But the yeah. generous person would leave. How many rows can I leave? All right, let's leave a little extra. Yeah. And it gives you a chance. It, it, the law becomes a barometer for what's in your heart in a lot mm-hmm. of ways in yeah. these instances. So, San, Sandra Richter has worked on, on this a little bit in her book, Stewards of Eden. And she, she's done some work on figuring out like or, or accessed some scholarship that talked about the caloric intake of the average ancient Israelite and how much they could grow on their land and uh-huh. would their crops have actually lasted them a whole year. And she talked about like there actually is a, a yearly hunger season mm. where no families got way more than they need. Everybody's mm. kind of scrimping to make the grain last. And so to not muzzle your ox or to not to not um, reap to the edges of your field was actually a real sacrifice. It meant yeah. my children might be hungry if yeah. I leave this for someone else. It wasn't just like you're, you know, giving the clothes you never wear to goodwill. It, yeah, it was a little exactly. more costly than that. Yeah. And it was a leap of faith. You had to, <laughs> can I trust that, that, that Yahweh, not Baal, is the yeah. one who's going to provide the rain and provide the exactly. crops and can he make it last? So yeah, it was keeping the law. The law is so much about faith that, and I love your book pointing that out and kind of giving people um, an entry into what's going mm-hmm. on there. there. There's a cool illustration on page 14 where you talk about Sinai and how uh, Leviticus, which takes place all around Mount Sinai and how it's the mm-hmm. center of the Torah Mm-hmm. And what are you now? I just finished reading and I've been raving about it. Uh, Michael Morales's mm-hmm. uh, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord. This is a theology yeah, of Leviticus, so uh, which I was. Did this come out after your book or before? I think after, but I don't okay. know. What, check the date. I I was looking because it was so complimentary. Uh, what does it say? 2015. OK, so his is first. Okay. Mine came out in 2019. They're really they're, they're very complimentary books. I, I recommend people mm-hmm. read both of them because he go, does a deeper dive on what you, in the uh, illustration that you have of where Mount Sinai is, he actually lays out kind of the, yep. the whole, he, he goes real deep on yeah. it, uh, which Leviticus all books in the gray a, series does. Yeah. Leviticus is a chiasm. And so it's a chiasm in the middle of a chiasm. It's like this right. massive literary mountain. I love it. Well, I'm going to be doing a series of uh, Disciple Dojo videos that I'm prepping for on some of this, the background of the nice. temple and the tabernacle. And I'm nice. drawing from him and, uh, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show people this illustration in your book as well. What to, to you in like, a, like an elevator pitch, what's the, yeah. mo- the most important thing about where Sinai is located 
in, mm. in terms of being in the middle? What, like what difference mm -hmm. does it make other than, yeah, that's yeah. a cool literary pattern. Yeah. I think, I think to me, it means like, this isn't disposable. This is where the focus is of the Torah. This isn't like the boring part we skip over or we can get rid of, but it's like, this is where it all leads. And if you see Leviticus as the center of that, then you have the day of atonement right at the very mm -hmm. top. And so then it connects so beautifully with the New Testament. The the center of, of chiasms or peaks and the climax yeah. or whatever is, you know, that's it's like the biblical author's way of saying, pay attention. Yeah. And this I love is it. really important. You talked about on page 69, you have a good section um, on Yahweh's dangerous presence. And how you, I love the line you says, when he moves into the neighborhood, the Israelites need to live rightly mm -hmm. and how it's all, you know, the tabernacle is a way for that to happen and how, how, how God is a dangerous God, you know, he, mm -hmm. like Aslan, he's mm -hmm. good, but he's not safe. Not safe. Yeah. And so in, in unpacking that on page 73, you have a cool little insight I'd never caught before. And I was appreciative of it. I'd love for you to unpack it. You said, in fact, it's about the priest's clothes. And you said his clothes are an inside-out tabernacle. His most mm -hmm. elaborate garments, woven with purple, blue, red, and gold thread, correspond to the materials of the innermost sanctuary, are his outermost mm -hmm. layer. Underneath mm -hmm. this, he wears the plain white linen of the outer curtains of the courtyard. What mm -hmm. is, I mean, I can think of some ways that that's pretty mind-blowing in terms of what I'm going to be unpacking, hopefully, in some videos. But... Yeah. What is the importance of him wearing kind of a reverse tabernacle? Yeah, I think he he then brings the holiness of God out to the people like and he confers it on them as he pronounces the priestly blessing. Um, so he comes out among the people and shows them the splendor of God. And then on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, in the very center of Leviticus, he's not wearing all of the elaborate clothes. He's wearing just the plain white linen. So he brings the common people into the presence of God on that day. Mm -hmm. So I describe it in another place as an interpenetration of roles. Like mm. he represents the people to God and God to the people. So he goes back and forth and his clothing actually visually demonstrates that traversing from outside in, inside out. Mm -hmm. That's, I love that. And, and the way he, even the way he smells, you know, because he's mm -hmm. using a certain incense that can only be used on the priest and in the Holy of Holies. So yep. I, I've told That's people right. you can, you could smell the priest coming, yep. uh, you know, and, and everything about him is showing teach. It's like yep. a, it's like a life-size children's sermon for a whole nation. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Or as I, as I say in the book, he's a visual model of what the entire nation is supposed to be because he's mm -hmm. the one who bears God's name on his forehead um, among the people, just as they're supposed to bear God's name among the nations. I, I love it. And we could talk forever about this and go really nerdy on it <laughs> uh, because it's something that we both enjoy, but I want to shift gears. Everybody mm -hmm. listen, you really do need to read bearing God's name. Um, I cannot recommend it highly enough. And I want to make sure that everyone knows that this is not just, Hey, my friend, I'm interviewing my friend and she's got a book. So go buy it. No, literally, if I didn't know Carmen already, this would still be one of the best books that I read the year that it came out. So go buy it and read it. Let me, we want to close We've got a couple of more minutes and I want to ask you some viewer questions. Mm -hmm. um, I want to, I'll do three there are three questions, and I'll save the, the most intricate one last. You can fire, kind of fire okay. off answers. The first one is, 
uh, what are, where do you land? I know it's debatable, and, and in my Bible review videos, I point this out, and, and I have my own view, but where do you land on the date of the Exodus, and like, you know, late date, early date, mm-hmm. and Mount Sinai, the route, where did they cross? What was Yom Suf? Was it Aqaba? Was yeah. it Suez? Was it the lakes? What, how yeah. do you approach that? Or do you yes, even so, think it matters? So I am writing a commentary on Exodus for Baker Academic. I will have to come to a, a conclusion on this, but I haven't yet. Um, <laughs> I lean towards a, like right now where it stands, I lean towards a late date because I think it makes mm-hmm. the best sense. Um, if, and you mean by that, a, what year, what time like frame? The, for... Like 1200s BC rather than, um, rather than, is it 1400s? 14. So yeah, the the 15th century date, I think is problematic for two reasons. One, because Egypt is still in control of Canaan at that point. So if they leave Egypt and they get into Canaan, they'd be fighting Egyptians rather than fighting Mm -hmm. Canaanites. And because Pharaoh during the 15th century is living at Thebes, which is a a long way from the Delta, Nile Delta, um, region where the Israelites are in Goshen. And so for Moses and Aaron to keep presenting themselves to Pharaoh, you know, it seems a little bit tricky if Pharaoh is way, 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 way far away. Mm. Um, And then the late date seems to to kind of solve those problems uh, in some way. But I haven't dealt, I haven't delved into that question as deeply as I will need to. Mm. As far as the location of Sinai and the place they crossed, I tend at this point, again, without having done a lot of work on it, I'll have to do this for the introduction of the commentary. Um, I lean towards them crossing at the Bitter Lakes um, and then crossing over the the um, Sinai Peninsula. And I, I lean towards the St. Catherine's Monastery, like traditional location of Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. I think I saw you say on social media recently that you prefer the Arabian Peninsula um, location. I'm open to that um i haven't i'm curious to hear the reasons that you you lean in that direction to me the 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 main exposure i've had to that view is from patterns of evidence for the exodus which is a documentary Mm -hmm. that um i've been told is deeply problematic in in its scholarship so i i spoke with james hoffmeyer about it he's the leading the world's leading evangelical egyptologist and he and he's Mm -hmm. interviewed in the video and he says they just they're throwing together all these different things and saying, "Woo, look, but it's all like coincidental and uh, it, it's not a solid it's not a solid documentary. So if you have access to some other information that has swayed you, I'd love to hear it. I, well, what what pushed me and that nudged me for so way mm-hmm. back back in before seminary. Uh, yeah. I read the, the Gold of Exodus, which was Bob Cornuke and, you know, going to okay. Mount Sinai in Arabia. And then he okay. said the crossing was down at the Straits of Tira at the bottom. Yeah. Um, and that was interesting, but I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. I couldn't uh, critique it. Then yeah. I, my aunt actually gave me a, a DVD copy of a documentary called The Exodus Revealed that mm-hmm. Leonard Moeller did. And Frank okay. Moorcross was one of the contributors and some other scholars mm-hmm. at the time. This was still early seminary, so I couldn't really evaluate. Yeah. But they, they presented a compelling case. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't the kind of sensational Indiana Jones type. It okay. was, you know, a Scandinavian scholar and his team and they traced and they just, they laid out methodically in light of scripture and they addressed some of the concerns, you know, some of the objections, but it was, it was really interesting. I actually showed it during seminary when I was in Jeff Niehaus's class, I showed mm-hmm. it to him 
and I let him borrow it. And he came back. He said, this is really good. This is, they mm-hmm. just need to open up. Saudi Arabia needs to let archaeologists which, and people in. Which and they now then, have done. Yeah, they've, it's become an archaeological site. I don't know who, and, and there's going to be controversy because anything that uh, has implications for the historical Israel in a Muslim mm-hmm. nation, there's some political stuff that, sure. that can have. But I'm actually hoping this year to go with the with a group mm-hmm. on to that route to Saudi Arabia and see nice. if yeah. it is or not. But I, I tell people you can't take a hard stance on it. At least I mm-hmm. don't think so. Um, I don't have one. <laughs> Yeah, I, if if somebody's really and it's like this is the one, that's that to me that's a red flag of just having seen the good. There's so there are good arguments for the different mm-hmm. positions for yeah. sure. Um, yeah. So I'm going to be interested to see and and when your work when your commentary comes out, I definitely want to check it out. But yeah, yeah, that would be I'd say check out that documentary and see what you think. I'd like to hear yeah. your thoughts on the Exodus revealed. I think the whole you can watch the whole thing on YouTube, uh, but Super. I have the DVD. Um, but somebody asked, what are your thoughts on Psalm 82, the divine assembly and, and, uh, Heiser and his work, which has been pretty popular lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, do you have any kind of, you don't have to go in depth, but just, they wanted yeah. to know, what do you think about that view or that yes, the importance this, of the divine assembly, I guess. This is a hot topic. And Michael Heiser has a lot of followers who are very excited about his work. And I'm grateful for the way he's dug into ancient sources and assembled his evidence. Um, I've read The Unseen Realm. I've not read all his other books. He's a friend. I've spoken at his conference. Um, and he's been a, a big encouragement to me. Um, but I don't, I don't like know all of his view inside and out. I, I don't keep up with his podcast. Um, here's what I would say in short. Um, It is clear that the Old Testament writers assumed that there was a divine council or a divine assembly um, made up of some made up of residents of the divine realm, whether they're angels or deities or whatever is less clear. Um, And part of the reason it's less clear is because the word Elohim in Hebrew, as you know, can refer to any resident of the divine realm, not not necessarily just gods. So even if it calls someone Um, you're among the gods or whatever, doesn't mean they're all the same thing as God, big G God. So um, it's clear that the Old Testament writers assume this. There are two main views about whether we should then accept that view as an accurate perception of reality. And so we have Michael Heiser on the one hand saying the Old Testament says it, that settles it. Um, And John Walton on the other hand saying the Old Testament says it, but that's an example of divine accommodation. So there isn't actually a divine council. They just thought there was. And so this is the way, this is the way they're, they're conceptualizing what's going on in the heavenly realm. Um, we, would we Walton, really... let me ask you real quick, would Walton mm, yeah. put it similar to when they talk about the, the pillars of the earth or yes. the dome yes. of the sky? The he would say this is the dome, yeah. a world yeah. picture and it's the same. That's how we should approach it. Yeah. So he says there's no new scientific revelation in the bible god isn't trying to change their science he's trying to he accommodates himself to their view of the world and he sees the the divine council as part of that accommodation not that it's science um in the modern sense but i suppose to ancient people that would have been part of science like how the cosmos is made up um and so he says that the biblical writers are assuming this god doesn't correct them he just sort of plays along 
or mm-hmm. reveals himself as greater than the gods or, or right. whatever. And Heiser says, no, this, the, the Bible reveals this. Mm-hmm. I personally feel like I'm somewhere in the middle between these two. I don't know if it's possible to be in the middle. I feel like I'm, I'm there I, with you. If you are, <laughs> I, I follow Walton in saying there's no new scientific revelation in the Bible, but when it crosses the line into like religious spiritual, like the spiritual world, I, I, it's harder for me to see that God wouldn't want to correct that the, mm-hmm. their view of God and how, and how the divine realm works. On the other hand, I feel like Heiser is way more sure than I am what that all looks like and how to connect all the dots. And so mm-hmm. he brings up the, passages in scripture that that talk about the divine counsel and he to him this makes like a very it seems a very detailed vision of where demons come from and what are the hierarchies and how it all works and i feel like we get little glimpses but i'm not sure how the dots connect behind the scenes Mm. so i feel a little more agnostic than heiser on how it works out that's a beautiful answer that's exactly what i've tried to communicate when people have asked me about is as I've said, yeah. Heiser is worth reading. He's yes. bringing some good observations. Yes. He's, he's more confident than I think his case allows, but he, his arguments are definitely worth taking into account. Yes. And, I, and I've appreciated I've, I, his books, you know, some of those books, you, you enjoy it, but then they frustrate you sometimes. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of those that we all have them. Even, you know, if I read something that a friend's write and I disagree with them, but I really like them. It's yeah. that same feeling. It's like, ah, oh, you're, yeah. you're making great points here, but. Ugh. Heiser and Walton are both my friends. And I'm like, oh, I don't, you, I, this is where I can't like just agree with something because someone's my friend because I got friends across the spectrum. And I'm like, oh, let me just stand here in the middle and try to be friends with both of you. <laughs> well, your insight, I think, is spot on in that case. Um, and I agree with you completely. There's, there's both voices need to be heard. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me close then. I know you've got to run. I won't keep you, but somebody did submit and you said that this is a passage that you've become excited about. Yes. What is going on with Zipporah and God trying to kill Moses or Moses's child? And then this whole foreskin bloody bridegroom thing. So I've put it on the screen. Um, Exodus 4.24 is on the screen. It's on Hebrew and I've got the Lexham English Bible up on the side. Um so you can just, if you, this will be kind of, we end it. Uh, what are your thoughts on this very strange passage? Yes, I'm very happy you asked about it because it is a strange passage. And this is where the payoff comes from sinking into the text, thinking about historical background, as well as literary design. I think for this passage in particular, literary design is the key to mm. kind of cracking it. Um, so t- in order to, to zero into this verse, I'd want to first take a step back and look at the design of the overall book of Exodus. And what's really cool about Exodus is that you have two deliverance stories. Um, in chapters one and two, or one, I guess one through four, you have the deliverance of Moses. And then from five, five and following are the deliverance of the, the nation of Israel. And there are tons of parallels between these two deliverance stories. So if you just think about the Moses infancy story, um, you have a Hebrew boy who's under threat from Pharaoh who escapes through the water. He's in the reeds. He escapes through the water. He crosses the desert. He ends up at Mount Sinai where he encounters the divine presence and is commissioned for service. And then he goes back and the whole cycle starts over again. And you've got Israel under threat from Pharaoh 
who pass through the water, uh, the Sea of Reeds, the Yam Suf, which is not the, never called the Red Sea in the Bible, always the Sea of Reeds, crosses the desert, ends up at Sinai where they encounter the divine presence and he commissions them for his service. So it's important to see that first. Um, that's, the, that's the first building block. The second building block is that in the first deliverance story, the story of Moses, women are doing the saving. Yahweh, mm. Yahweh listens and Yahweh commissions, but the, the saving baby Moses story mm-hmm. is about women who are not under divine command. They just do the right thing. And you have the daughter of, well, you first have the, the midwives, Shifra and Pua. Yep. Then you have the daughter of Levi and the daughter of Pharaoh and the sister of the baby. And mm-hmm. they conspire together to rescue Moses. And the text uses some of the same verbs for their action as it uses later for Yahweh's action in saving Israel. They mm-hmm. saw, they heard, they had pity, they, they rescued. And this is what God does with the whole nation. So... So I think what's going on in chapter four with that little bit of background is we're, we're getting the, the second parentheses, the, the closure around the Moses deliverance saga. Uh-huh. So God, is, God used women to, to rescue baby Moses. Uh-huh. And now as he's going back into Egypt, he uses a woman, his wife, to rescue him from God's wrath. Mm. Um, so that's important. There's, and, and in Hebrew... In Greek, their names are identical. Shifra and Zipporah are the same word in Greek. Oh, in I didn't know Hebrew, that. they're close. Um, uh-huh. Shifra and and Zipra, mm-hmm. Zipra, like they're almost the same. Right. And so there's this literary echo between these two women who who rescue Moses. Um, and then, and, but it's also kind of the hinge to the deliverance of the nation. And in the first story, the deliverance of Moses his identity is, is in question mm-hmm. throughout that saga. He's, he's a Hebrew. He's adopted by an Egyptian mother. When he flees to Midian, they call him an Egyptian, but he doesn't correct them or introduce himself as to what right. his identity is. Then when he meets God at Sinai, uh, the Lord says, I am the God of your father, mm-hmm. the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God clarifies that he, he has a Hebrew identity, but apparently he has not circumcised his sons. So if he's going to be the deliverer of the Hebrews, and if the prerequisite for celebrating the Passover is that, which is remembering the Exodus, is that you have circumcised your males in your household, then of all people, Moses has to have complied. It's as if passing through the wilderness back to the land of Egypt is um, a moment of truth for him. He's got to decide, what are you actually? God said, you, he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your father. But you have not physically identified yourself and your household with the people of the covenant yet. And if you haven't, then you fall under the same threat that all the Egyptians fall under in Egypt. So God has just said to, to Moses on his way back um, in verse 22, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Mm -hmm. So the refusal to release the Israelites means Pharaoh's firstborn son is under threat. And and Moses grew up in an Egyptian household, and so if his sons are not circumcised, then he falls under that threat. Mm -hmm. He hasn't fully identified with the people of Israel. So there's more I could say here about how this connects this 
this passage has a lot of echoes with Exodus chapter uh, 18, where Jethro comes with Zipporah and the sons to meet Moses at Sinai, or right before Sinai. Um, It's in the literary design, it's set right before Sinai. There's a whole bunch of connections between those two passages, and then there's connections between this passage and chapters one and two. So in a sense, it's bracketing the Moses deliverance saga, and it's bracketing the the Israel deliverance saga. Mm-hmm. Um, so what so then, actually is... Ha- yeah, go ahead. Well, so I was going to say, if you could... One, I can't wait to read your commentary, because it's going to be really good. Um, and this is this because this is these are connections that I've never seen uh, mm-hmm. or noticed in my own study. So yeah, I love it. Um, and I don't want you, you know, obviously, I want people to buy your commentary when it comes out. But <laughs> what would you say the question if somebody says, so what is when Zipporah, when she says you're a, a bridegroom of blood mm-hmm. or a bloody bridegroom or whatever? Yeah. What do you think that that is trying to communicate to the reader of this yes. account? Yes. So there's all kinds of ambiguities in 24 and 25. Um, who's about to kill? Who, who is the Lord about to kill? Mm-hmm. Which son's foreskin is being cut off? What is she touching when she touches Moses' feet? Is this his mm-hmm. actual feet or is this a euphemism? Right. Um, who is Zipporah talking to when she says, you're a bridegroom of blood to me? Um, and who is the Lord letting alone in, in verse 26? Because it just says him. Is it Moses? Is it his son? So there's a whole bunch of ambiguity sort of built into this. this, There's mystery. I think her statement, my my best guess is that her statement is asserting um, that because she's done this ritual action to identify her sons with the Hebrew people, she's now declaring, it's like a ritual declaration, you're now a blood relative to me. Mm. Like we're, we're part of we're part of the Hebrew nation now, officially. Mm-hmm. And somehow she has this ritual knowledge, maybe because her father's a priest. I don't know if she and Moses have talked about this before. He seems pretty hesitant to circumcise anyone because when you get to Joshua chapter 5, the entire nation has to be circumcised. Like all the men who've mm-hmm. been born in the wilderness apparently weren't circumcised the whole way along. So they have this mass circumcision after they cross the Jordan River. Yeah. So Moses himself seems really hesitant for some reason. Um, I Part of me suspects that when Zipporah circumcises the sons, she touches Moses' private parts with the foreskin. Mm-hmm. Because, and here's, here's why I think that might be the case. It, Moses would, have likely, would likely have been circumcised in the Egyptian way Mm-hmm. at age 13 if he right. i'm just thinking if you're hiding an infant and you don't want to be discovered you're probably not performing elective surgery on them right. to make them scream right so i'm assuming that he goes through the regular egyptian process of circumcision which means nothing covenantally and mm-hmm. so by circumcising moses sons and touching him with the foreskin it's a way of like recircumcising him mm-hmm. um, symbolically it says symbolically I think it says it the, at the end of verse uh, 26, so the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcisions, plural. Oh, it's so plural. It's plural in Hebrew. So, so some people have suggested she's circumcising both sons or her touching Moses with it is like a ritual action that makes him circumcised in the Hebrew way as well. I'm not sure, but that's... <laughs> That's one idea that appeals to me. 
Yeah, I'm trying. I'm, I'm showing it on Lagos so people can see. Yeah, that is mm-hmm. that is the plural form. I never caught that yeah. either. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- there's so much more here that that binds verses 18 through 31 together as a textual unit. There's a bunch of um, echoes at the beginning and the end. You know, Moses and Jethro's conversation, Moses and Aaron's conversation. Um, Yahweh and Moses conversation like he Mm. meets Yahweh Lord meets Moses and tries to kill him but then Aaron meets Moses and it's like the same word go to the wilderness to meet Moses so he met him and kissed him the the word kissed sounds like tries to kill and and so there's all these things like it's a tightly compacted unit that I think we need to read all together and read it then in its greater literary context showing how it's like bookends around the different deliverance stories that's I love that. I that's a great insight to it. And I because I've taught on that passage and, and I had to be honest with people and say, yeah, there's a lot of ambiguities, including mm-hmm. how it's actually translated. I love your idea. It's very similar to when 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 Methodists don't remember being baptized as babies, but they have a come to Jesus moment and they want to yeah. be baptized. But Methodism tends to frown on rebaptizing people mm-hmm. because they're like, mm-hmm. no, it's a one time thing. So they kind of skirt it by doing a remember your baptism ceremony where <laughs> sure. they basically like you get water, you get to get dunked or sprinkled or whatever you want. And yeah. they're the, pre- the, you know, the preacher's not saying I baptize. They're saying, remember your baptism. Yeah, And sure. it, it, it makes, I mean, I understand why, and I'm not knocking that practice. I just, that is the first thing I thought of when you were talking about, you know, how you view it is kind of like, remember your circumcision. Those- yeah. Uh, this this is counting now because you've actually decided to. Mm-hmm. I love that. that's a that's folks. This is why we have people like Carmen Imes on this show, even though we've never <laughs> had this show. She's the first. <laughs> but hopefully, setting the bar. Any other people that come on here, you're setting the bar high for what they're going to have to bring to the table. Um, cool. Carmen, I know we passed the time, and and it's these long form discussions. I love them because you just get to mm-hmm. talk, and rather than having mm-hmm. a set of things to go through. So, yeah, great is questions. there be- before we take off and end it? Is there anything else that we haven't discussed, or anything that you want mm-hmm. viewers to know about either what you're doing, what's coming up, or mm-hmm. also I want you to tell them how they can find you and follow you online, and what's your preferred sure. methods for that? Sure. Yeah, you're welcome to follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Goodreads. You can spy on me and see what I'm reading. Um, I have a YouTube channel and a blog. Um, my YouTube channel, I I release videos on Tuesdays called Torah Tuesday. And soon I'll be making videos on the Zipporah story so we can get this information awesome. out on there as well. Just little five to seven minute videos. Um I love interacting with people and their questions about the Bible. So, and I think the the parting word that I would leave for people is um, don't walk away from scripture because you find something that you can't understand or it seems troubling to you. Um, I think it was Esau McCulley who used the example of Jacob wrestling with the angel. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, when he encounters the angel, which is, by the way, uh, another sort of parallel story to the Zipporah story. There's this yeah, like right. liminal space encounter with God. God causes harm um, and there's a blessing involved in it. So there's there's lots of parallels there that are fun. And a permanent physical uh, and a permanent a physical <laughs> change. Yes. Yes. Uh, and the Balaam story is the other one that's similar encounter with God. God seeks to kill him. He's, he's also crossing national boundaries. Yeah. So the, all three of those are really fascinating to line up uh, next to each other. But what I would say, um, 
Esau Macaulay describes this wrestling with God as what we need to do when we come to difficult passages in scripture. Like, don't let it go until it blesses you. And yes. that was my approach with this text on Zipporah and, and on the circumcision. I was like, I have no living idea what is going on here and why this it's it feel it sounds archaic. Mm-hmm. It seems mysterious. What is it doing here? Why do we even need to know this? Like what's even happening? And I just refuse to let go unless it would bless me. And and that is my encouragement to you when you come to a strange part in the Bible. The more time I spend with the strange parts, the more excited I get about the literary artistry of scripture, the theological depth that it offers us and its relevance for our, our walk of faith. I love everything about that answer and that final thought. I totally agree that the reason that the image, the background image for Bible for the rest of us is Jacob wrestling with the angel by oh, Gustave Dore. Yeah because of that exact concept Mm, is mm. wrestle when you, I tell people, if you're not wrestling with scripture, when you read it, you're not reading it because it's going to change you. And, uh, but sometimes, yeah, you do have to hang on and really, really be uncomfortable, uh, which is, you know, jujitsu is all about being uncomfortable, being comfortable, being uncomfortable (laughs) and biblical jujitsu, which is disciple dojo, what we're all about helping Mm -hmm. people be comfortable more comfortable with those uncomfortable parts of the bible um Mm -hmm. even though we don't Mm -hmm. fully ever become truly comfortable with some things in scripture uh that wrestling so carmen i everything you said is just it's golden so i'm so glad we got it thank you so much so much you for the perfect questions well you're the perfect guest to kick this thing off i'm hoping to see you around at sbl and i'll that sounds great uh, picking your brain more did we cover any everything did i mean is there anything that you're like i want to make sure that i was going to ask you to talk about why you didn't why you decided not to get a phd you know kind of back at the beginning as we were talking about you know why did i do this i i wanted to return the question and say what what was your process like how why did you decide not that's a it. good, that's a, well, I'll tell you real quickly. It was, mm-hmm. I, the doors never seemed to open, uh, academically mm-hmm. I, I need, I would have need to put, cause I was not thinking of going into PhD when I did my mm-hmm. MDiv. So I did not do any PhD preparatory work yeah. for my MDiv. So my, what I, where I would be coming in at was way mm-hmm. further down. And that's part of mm-hmm. what I went and talked to Daniel Block about. Okay. Um, and I would have to have bumped my trans, like, I, I would I would need to do a THM to okay. get up to where I need to be. And yeah. then right after that, financially, the doors never opened. Um, yeah. It just nothing. I never it didn't feel right. Yeah. And so I kind of felt like I was being guided in the direction of mm-hmm. you don't have to get a Ph.D. to be able to be in that world and translate yep. it to people. Yeah. Absolutely. I love, I love what you're doing for the record. I, I, your video content and, and stuff is great. I feel like I, I am often telling people about your channel and, you know, if somebody asks me about you, I'm like, he's the guy. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I I so appreciate it because I've, I've, the one thing that I have felt insecure about is because I don't have a PhD. I am, Mm -hmm. you know, a lay person. Uh, when, when have had been on podcasts and people like, Oh, Bible scholar, James. And I'm like, not a scholar. I'm not, don't, you know, like, like Amos, I'm not a scholar or the son of a scholar. Yeah, um, I would call you a scholar. I feel like you study, you study well, and you have the tools at your disposal. So you might not mm. have the, 
the academic credential, like the terminal degree, but you do right. have an MDiv and you do have, look at all those books behind you that you're <laughs> digging into. So I, I would call yeah. you a Bible scholar. I would call I, well, you I, an independent Bible scholar. That's what I. Okay. I well, I'll take that. I'll quote you on that. And now that it's <laughs> recorded here on video. Uh,